there's music playing. It's Latin America. There's music playing <laughs> always. There's a truck going by selling mangoes and he's playing music. And there's neighbors and restaurants and everybody playing music. They're selling like tomatoes with, I would say, religious fervor. Like it sounds like it, these tomatoes would do amazing things for a person's life. <laughs> so you're saying their, their salesmanship is maybe some hyperbole in there? I would say so, yeah. It's a lot of bombast for very simple, like day to day foodstuffs and propane and water. It's, uh, yeah. It's kind of neat, though, if you think about it, compared to what it's like here in North America, because um, nobody gets excited about anything. I mean, it's, it's hard to get anybody yes. to even serve you here. So it'd be kind of nice to have somebody, you know, yeah. extol the virtues of their tomatoes that they have. <laughs> yeah. We joked about going back to Canada and giving it a try, like at the motorcycle show when Jeremy's selling his books, to just run around yelling as loud as he can. Roads, crazy drivers, drop bikes, turned away at hotels, burning garbage, a deviant dog, and they're having the time of their lives. Exploring the back roads of Peru on Adventure Rider Radio's exclusive travel series, Southward Chronicles. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Max BMW has four locations. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories available online to ready to ship to your door the moment you order. MAXBMW.com Don't chance losing your gear because your straps loosened or failed. Get Green Chili Adventure Gear. Heavy-duty, American-made, innovative luggage systems for all motorcycles, and you can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage with their system. GreenChiliADV.com The Cycle Pump Tire Inflator has been proven to be the best motorcycle pump in the business. It's made by Best Rest Products, along with the tire iron, bead breaker, easy air tire gauge, and a bunch of other moto gear. CyclePump.com You'll get way more miles from your chain and sprockets by using the MotoBreeze chain oiler that's powered by wind pressure, no electrical or vacuum connections. One ounce of oil gets you 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. MotoBreeze.com This is one of Adventure Rider Radio's exclusive travel series called Southward Chronicles, the ongoing saga of two riders traveling together on separate but parallel journeys. On this adventure, we've been following L. West and Jeremy Craker riding their own motorcycles, a BMW F700 and a KLR650, respectively. They're a couple, but until departing on this adventure, the relationship had been limited to a long-distance one, living about 60 miles or 100 kilometers apart. They ride their own bikes and carry their own gear, all of it, each carrying everything they need should they get separated or if they decide it just isn't working and they want to go their own ways. Now, so far, they've traveled from Alberta, Canada, down through the U.S., Mexico, Central America. They crossed the Darien Gap on the Stallrat sailing ship, and they're now in Peru. And since we last talked, their adventure has really ramped up. So where are you guys now? We're in Nazca, Peru. 
Peru. It's either N-A-S-C-A or N-A-Z-C-A. I've seen both. Yeah, I think it's N-A-Z-C-A. Z-C-A. On our way to uh, Cusco, Cusco and hopefully going to see um, Machu Picchu, Picchu in the next few days. Uh, my name is Jeremy Craker. I'm a writer from Canada, and I am currently in Nazca, Peru with my lovely girlfriend. My name is Elle West, or Elle on Wheels, and I'm traveling with Jeremy from Canada to Argentina on our motorcycles. So, so how far is that along, you know, as you're heading down into South America? Well, it feels like we've been on the road and we've covered a lot of miles. But um, I think as far as South America goes, we're not even at the halfway point. Yeah, we've got a lot of distance to travel yet to get down to Ushuaia. Mm-hmm. From Canada, it's day 120 for us so far on this trip. Mm. Day 120. Wow. So, so how, mm-hmm. like, how does that work out as far as your schedule goes? I mean, are you looking at that at all? We're looking at being in Patagonia when it's not too cold. And so that's now. December, January, February is the best time for temperatures to be down in that area of the world. So we're originally thinking Christmas, New Year's, and then it's changed to mid-January. We're still aiming to be down there around mid-January, but we've got a lot of miles to cover to get there. Mm-hmm. Does it feel like the, the, the time is slipping away here on you, or do you feel pretty good about your time so far? I think there's always a wish for more time for me. There's so many things I want to see and do and explore. And even today, we're not in a beautiful hotel room. There's nothing remarkable about this place, but we could stay easily and just have a rest day or have a day to catch up on computer stuff and note taking or organizing or just sleeping. Yeah, I feel like Elle has a special relationship with time. Uh, she seems to believe that you can do all of these things concurrently <laughs> when really uh, we have to make some mutually exclusive choices here, I think. Mm. We've even talked about not going to Machu Picchu and saving that for the way back. But I worry that if we keep saving things for the way back, there's not going to be a chance to do them all then either. Mm. And who knows what exactly our route back will look like. So I really hope to fit in Machu Picchu and still get out of Peru before Christmas and keep heading south. Well, since we we last talked and we talked about um, the road of death and we talked about some different things you were going through, how's the trip been? Uh, Since then, it's just gone from strange adventure to strange adventure. We had a few days in a row, maybe five or six, where we were scrambling to stay on the road and to be mechanically healthy and to get to a safe place for night. Yeah, Peru is throwing some twists and turns at us, for sure. There's a truck passing by with some pretty loud stuff. I don't know if you can hear that. Yeah, it sounds like a bird squeaking in the background. Okay, okay. that's so, some more music going down the road from somebody's loudspeaker. And what are they selling? I have no idea. No, they're, sometimes they're just selling experience for <laughs> the pure joy of it. <laughs> But no, since we've been in Peru, uh, so we left Vilcabamba in Ecuador, which uh, was an amazing little hippie community um, filled with all kinds of quirky people, including ourselves. Cabamba? Vilcabamba. Vilcabamba. Mm. Yeah. It's a small little town just south of Loja in Ecuador. And um, 
it's great for food for vegetarian people like me. But it was interesting too. The, there was an actual place called the UFO restaurant and there were some depictions and street art of UFO landings and a lot of hippies. Some people have moved there specifically to avoid chemtrails. Uh, so that, that will tell you the kind of uh, crowd that gravitates towards this, uh, this environment. Describe this villa. Yeah, like it's, um, it's a tourist-friendly little community in the mountains surrounded by beautiful green, uh, lush mountains where they grow bananas and coffee and stuff like that, I think. And San Pedro. Yeah, and San Pedro, which is a cactus that is known for its hallucinatory um, and healing, spiritual healing properties and things like this. So there's a lot of English spoken around town. Uh, a lot of people that I imagine uh, were holdovers from uh, draft dodging days of the Vietnam War. Um, that's maybe me, you know, pushing my own narrative onto the onto the folks. But that type of crowd, I guess you would say. And uh, yeah. Crystals being sold yeah. and UFO theories and not uh, uncommon to see lots of advertisements around the town square for re spiritual retreats, including things like San Pedro or ayahuasca. Mm -hmm. No idea if that's legal or not, but interesting to see. Yeah. But apart from that, it was had a lot of great coffee shops and restaurants and uh, beautiful roads in and out of the town. Mm -hmm. um, so Vilcabamba, definitely check it out if you are in the area. What are the, what's the buildings and everything look like in the villa? Um, standard colonial style buildings. Um, the church was a little bit more funky modern than I've seen in Ecuador. Um, it had some neon on it, I believe, and some funny colors. But uh, in most um, of Latin America, the town square is a pretty recognizable feature where it's got a park um, filled with green space and quite often there's a statue in the middle and then on one side there's the church and depending on the town sometimes there's another church on the other side and then coffee shops and uh, restaurants and little shops all all around it and the city just kind of uh spirals out from there like spokes on a wheel um sort of and this city had quite a few other uh travelers um, people who looked like they've been living in their vans, sitting on the sidewalk around the church square, selling homemade bracelets or jewelry or whatever kind of trinkets they could sell, the, the stuff they had made to make some money. Mm -hmm. Did you guys stumble across this or, did you, or was it on your list? I actually went to uh, meet a friend who I had met probably about five or six years ago on a previous motorcycle trip. He'd left the States and settled down there. So we knew there would be someone to see, maybe a place to stay. And it just sounded like a really groovy town. Well, what about the, um, what about after you left there? Oh, after we left there, that's when things turned interesting. I think, um, we left on the, not a very standard approach to the Peruvian border. We took, uh, the road straight south from Vilcabamba, which was hours and hours of twisty, rough gravel road. Uh, sometimes it was asphalt and then sometimes the asphalt was washed away and there were some mud sections and, uh, the thick odd. mud looked like cake batter, just like 200 meters of thick, goopy cake batter. Mm -hmm. That's gross. Yeah. Oh, it's just gone? Yeah. Well, it's covered in wet, so now it's just turned to mud. Mm. Yeah, so the asphalt in sections had been washed away, and uh, some sections, the mudslides had, you know, the asphalt was there, but it was under mud. And then other places, it was just um, a beautiful gravel, uh, rocky dirt road. Um, but one thing that was constant was the twists, turns, and the climbs, and uh, the beautiful scenery. Um, every surface in 
Ecuador seems to be uh, hand-tilled and planted. So even on the steepest uh, slopes, you'll find uh, a bunch of ladies in fedora hats and um, yellow rubber boots and shawls and things like this tilling the earth. And cows and sheep and goats hanging on to the side of mountains that I don't know how they don't fall off of. (laughs) So that road took us south for hours and hours and hours, uh, slow going in parts. And to the most relaxed, lazy border I have ever encountered in my life. We were the only people crossing the border. And it was so relaxed that when we went into the office to cancel our vehicle permits, the guy was like, oh, I have to phone somebody to come and do this for you. It's going to be half an hour. Is that a problem? Well, um, I guess that's just the only option we have. So no, we went across the street, bought a snack. There weren't even any restaurants to get food from. So all we ate was peanuts for supper, Mm -hmm. but sat there eating our peanuts. Well, the guy walked across the road to leave his office and come get us after half an hour and say, oh, hey, your papers are ready. Come on over. Very friendly, relaxed. No one else there. And then and then the border guards took photos with us. Yeah, in the <laughs> middle of the street. Yeah. Wow. That's fun. Just, and is that because it's remote? Yeah, I think so. It's a seldom used crossing or at least by overlanders. I think, um, you know, I think locals go back and forth there to trade all the time. But the road on the uh, Ecuador side was just uh, challenging. Uh, yeah. In spots, like I say, and slow. So you would avoid that uh, crossing if you were in a hurry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we drove across the bridge uh, and there was a barrier on the other side entering Peru and nobody at the barrier. So we just parked our motorcycles on the bridge and walked into Peru and uh, got our paperwork done on that side to get in. Then you walk back and you open up the barrier yourself? We were thinking about it, but somebody did actually come and uh, lift the gate and let us through. So, But it was very relaxed. And then on the uh, Peruvian side, the road turned into beautiful asphalt road, twisty still and windy. Yeah, still twisty in the mountains and paved. But one thing, because the border was small, there was no place to buy insurance. And this is required in Peru. So he told us very politely but firmly, please, please, please buy insurance. Don't think this is a way to not get it. I really strongly encourage you as soon as you get to the next town to buy insurance. Well, that took a couple of days of figuring out where to go and how to get there and which office and what time it was open and what to do. And it was expensive. It was $50 Canadian per person to get our bikes insured for one in Peru each. For one month. Yeah. So that was us entering Peru from Ecuador. Uh, Great border crossing. Um, And then we found a cheap hotel uh, that night. And um, the next day we continued our journey into Peru. The insurance that you're that he's saying that you have to buy at the border, what, what sort of insurance is that? Like, do you actually have coverage from that? Is it covering you for, for damage or is it just liability or is it just one of those things that they're requiring in the country? You ask good questions. We should read that paper. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I haven't read it in full detail. I know that it's required. I checked my dates when it starts and when it ends. And I checked that my um, vehicle information number is correct and my license plate is correct. And I didn't even ask more than that, honestly. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those things that you have to have. So it might include some vehicle loss kind of stuff. Um, it might. I think it's mostly a third-party liability so that if we smash into somebody's chicken uh that or whatever if we do some damage to somebody or somebody's property then then they will be compensated i think but all i know is that it's required police demand it if Mm -hmm. they ever stop you and so we bought it 
Jeremy, did you check your VIN number and your license plate number on your paperwork? I generally do. Uh, this time I did not, though. I'm, I've been getting a little bit lazy with that. At the beginning, you check it and you check it and you check it. And then you kind of commit most of it to memory. So hmm, now I just good. look it over. Yeah, I look it over and I see that it's basically correct, not missing any parts that I've memorized. And then I, I call it good. But that's probably a bad habit. Um, I should probably start being more vigilant about that. Thanks for the reminder. <laughs> well, I was expecting you to say, no, I don't bother checking that. But but is there any concern when you're going across a little border crossing like that, that somehow you may not get things done properly? Like you may get into a country and find you didn't get the right paperwork, or you didn't sign the right form? I don't think any more at this crossing than any other big or little mistakes can happen sometimes. And I think it's important to look. And it's also tiring, especially like through Central America, when there's so many borders so close together, it's exhausting. And you want to just be done and finally get on the road and move instead of be standing in line or stuck around in the sunshine waiting in line again. So I have also been in the same situation where I just didn't care. Give me the paper. Thank you. Tuck it in my bag and drive away. Oh, wait, it's important to slow down and check those things. So you're in Peru. You, you cross the border at Peru. What happens after that? Well, okay. So we got a hotel and then the next day was fairly uneventful. We were just winding our way through more beautiful roads in Peru, up and down in twists. And then, um, we found the road was a bit slower than we had anticipated. So now we're making our way towards the Pan American Highway. Um, and the road to get there was quite slow. And so we ended up um, committing the cardinal sin of riding at night. Um, we found ourselves in this situation kind of out of desperation. There was no uh, lodging nearby and we didn't want to set up our tent at this point. Uh, we just run out of options for accommodations and end up driving at night. L in the lead. Um, we stopped at a few places. They had no room for us. We stopped at a restaurant and a hotel that didn't actually exist. Just the signs did. Um, and then we ended up in an expensive kind of last ditch resort hotel. Mm. And then, uh, and then the next day we had a long day on the Pan American and stayed at the beach. Well, hang on, Jeremy, and then, let me ask about that, that riding in the dark. So when it comes to riding in the dark, you said you, 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 you know, it's sort of, uh, it's your cardinal rule not to ride in the dark or the cardinal rule. And I think most of us understand that it's bad enough yeah. in your own home area, but in another area, it's um, obviously a problem when it comes to that rule though, you hear this so much. People say, Oh, I broke that cardinal rule of riding at night. Yeah. Now I understand yeah. that partly means you don't plan to ride at night, but wouldn't that be a rule where you just like, I mean, what, what makes you do it rather than just saying, no, we're not doing it. We're going to pitch a tent. I don't care where it is. Right. Uh, I'm sure it would come to that at some point. And actually, uh, the next story with the flat tire, that does actually factor in where we just did put our tent down. Um, but we were on a road that was fairly well um, maintained up to a point. Uh, and we were approaching a city. There was lots of traffic. So we didn't fear like, you know, sometimes you're not sure about um, bandits on the roadside, which is very, very rare. But in certain parts of the world, that's a possibility. We weren't afraid of that in this situation. Um, and sometimes you're afraid of dogs running out in front of you or, or cattle or things like that. And in this case, we were in a fairly urban area, so we weren't afraid of that. So all of the things that are uh, really dangerous about riding at night um, kind of had been eliminated. Um, so that was part of our, our uh, thinking at the time. And also there was really no good place to put up a tent. It was just road, um, 
little tiny buildings here and there and um, no good options. And it didn't seem dangerous. It just seemed inconvenient. And the one problem with riding at night that we that we did think about and was a possibility was mechanical failure. Um, but even then, we were close-ish to uh, to help. So, yeah, we're up on the side of a mountain and winding our way down, and you can see lights down below. So you know, there's a town down there. We just got to get to it, and then we'll find a hotel. Yeah, it seemed like a safer option to ride at night for a little bit, uh, and the payoff was to arrive at a hotel than to just camp at the roadside, um, be dirty and uncomfortable. And, and worried all night long. Yeah, and maybe worried a little bit about something going missing from your bike. Um, so we weighed the pros and the cons, and we decided to push it a little bit. And when I say riding at night, I mean the sun went down at, what, 6 p.m., and we arrived in town at like quarter to seven or something like that. So it wasn't a long stretch, and, uh, and we talked it over. And that was the important thing was that we were both on the same page we both felt um, fairly comfortable with it. Mm, yeah, well, clearly you guys thought it out very carefully and and, um, and considered the possibilities because often when you hear people saying, well, we had to ride at night, you picture, you know, careening along a dark mountain road um, in into the night, you know, with no idea. Because that's, mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're the animal thing or the uh, the um, some, something yes. on the road or something, that's always a, a huge concern. Yep. Yeah. And the condition of the road and potholes that you don't see until you're upon them. Mm-hmm. And other vehicles with no lights. Sure, because you you have no idea where you're going, right? I mean, you haven't been there before. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and we did actually try a few places. Like I said, we stopped uh, just as the sun was going down. We stopped at this roadside place. It was a modern gas station that said hotel, restaurant, and we went great. We're spending the night here. But we pulled in, and they said, no, 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 we're building it. Um, so the it's sign is yet. up. That's the first thing we put up is the <laughs> sign. Then we built the hotel and the restaurant. Uh, so it's not available. And we actually thought about asking if we could sleep on the floor. But to be honest, uh, like I say, we, we weren't desperate at this point. The weather was good. Um, we've got working headlights on our bikes and there was lots of traffic. So um, in, in this case, we decided to push on for another 45 minutes and it did pay off. It's um, it's a good way to, to do a hotel. I mean, you put up the sign and you see how many people stop there and give you an idea yeah. of what sort of traffic <laughs> you're going to get. Yeah. <laughs> do you guys have uh, any road rules that are inflexible? I mean, clearly the, the driving at night thing, you're weighing that up. So, I mean, that's a rule you probably want to stick to, but there is some fudge room in there. Do you have any other rules, any rules where you guys have discussed it and you say, no, absolutely not. We will not do this. Um, I wouldn't say that exactly, but, uh, I will say that if one of us says we need a break, then that's a rule. Um, so maybe like yesterday, uh, Ellen and I were thinking about maybe stopping for gas. She wanted to, but I didn't. Um, but we were both soft on that. But if one of us says I need to pull over, I need water or I need to rest. Um, we just say, yep, that's, that's happening. Um, so we kind of look after each other a little bit in that way and uh, don't push our, our endurance or anything like that. Yeah, I can't think of any actual rules that we've talked about or decided on. It's more circumstantial. There are certain roads that I get there and I say, I'm not sure I can do this. <laughs> and then we talk about it in debate. And Jeremy is very, very patient and makes a long time while I work up the gumption to push myself through the cake batter mud or whatever the situation may be. And then there's some situations where I just say, no, I are. We dropped my bike once today. I'm tired. I'm worn out. I'm done. I've got sewing machine leg going on. I am not driving across that bridge with holes in it and no guardrails and pure mud. 
mm-hmm. I'm done. I'm calling it quits here. Mm-hmm. And yeah. a smart thing to do with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess if L ever says, no, I'm not doing that road, then um, I can't imagine a situation in which I would try to goad her into it because that wouldn't be fair. Um, but usually she's up for the experience. So I just have to let her convince herself that it's okay. <laughs> you mentioned about gas. You just said there that you were, you just use that example about stopping for gas, but it got me to thinking you have a, a huge range difference here. You being on the KLR, Jeremy and L you being on uh, the F 700, there's a big difference in range. I'm curious what you think the difference is because I thought so at the beginning too and I'm not so much thinking that anymore. Yeah, there were two times where Elle and I both hit reserve at the exact same moment and I was surprised. I thought something was wrong with my bike, but Mm -hmm. nope. Uh, There were two times where my KLR hit reserve at 300 kilometers and normally I think I can go 375, 380 before hitting reserve, but um, I guess the, the way that I'm riding maybe or the elevation um, sucks a lot more gasoline, I'm not sure, but Generally, I think I've got a better range, but two times it just proven to be not the case. Oh, yeah, the the elevation may, may be doing it for you because I mean you're riding a KLR with I think a 23 liter tank, and L you're riding the F700 with I think a 16 liter tank. So I think I might only even have 14 liters, but my fuel efficiency is great. Mm-hmm. Whenever every time we stop to get gas, we've traveled on the same road, the same distance. I require many liters less than Jeremy does. Mm-hmm. And then she laughs at me and makes me remember how much more I'm paying in gas. And then I ask her how much her last service costs. And then she stopped laughing. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I think there was a, there was a timing chain in there. Wasn't there before you left? Absolutely. Yep. So continue on with your story. Yeah. So after we rode at night, we got a hotel. Then the next day it was a long, boring, horrible drive down the Pan American in which every Peruvian driver was trying to kill every other driver on the road. The driving is not, yeah, the same. It's a notch above what road um, lane filtering and splitting is normally. It's definitely more aggressive here in Peru. Yeah, they just do not care. It seems like they're actively trying to kill each other and you. And you. Give an example. Like have a big 18 wheel truck coming down the highway, one lane each direction. He's coming towards you. There's another one who wants to pass him. He pulls out and he looks to see if it's clear and he sees, oh yeah, there's someone there, but you're only a motorcycle. So I'm going to go ahead and pass on coming, facing you like you are shoved onto the shoulder to save your life. But that's just normal. That's how it goes. And on blind corners, uh, sometimes people will pass, um, cars and trucks included, and you'll be coming around a corner on your side of the road and someone will be right in your lane um, and you have to dodge onto the... And you see them, you flash your lights at them, nothing. They just keep coming. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Wow. And then if you're on the outside, that's got to get pretty scary. We've got used to getting on the shoulder when we need to. Yeah. We've we've dumped our speed down a little bit and uh, we take a little bit more uh, cautious decisions when it comes to driving. And in the cities, like trying to go in and out of a traffic circle, there is no sense to be made of it. Mm -hmm. You truly just shove wherever the heck you can make yourself fit and hope that no one makes contact with you. Yeah. Yeah. That's the traffic here. Um, We we battle down the Pan American uh, to this beach resort town. Uh, where we stayed in a little apartment. And then the next day was the big kind of dramatic adventure day. Mm, Yeah, that tiny little beach town, Juan Chaco. Did this day start out as you knew there was a challenge? Nope. (laughs) Nope. 
We no packed, idea. we loaded up, we wheeled our bikes out of the parking stall that he let us use for the night. So we're on the street, we're locked out of the place we stayed at for the night. We're done, we're ready to go. We started the engines and Jeremy says, mine won't start. I have a flat battery. Yep, my battery had gone flat again. Um, so I've got a, a maintenance style battery where you have to keep topping it up with water. Only I'm very bad at doing maintenance. <laughs> and also it's difficult to get at the battery and um, things like this. But it's really my fault. I just let the, the water go down a bit too much. Um, so L push started me. We went to a place where we bought uh, some distilled water. I topped up my battery and was good to go. But that put us back, right? So now it's at new. least an hour. Like yep. going in the store, asking for distilled water, finding distilled water, figuring out how not to get lost in this giant shopping mall, opening up the seats and the panniers and everything in the middle of the parking lot to get at the battery. It was time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you ask for distilled water? Well, I Googled it and it's distillata, but they were all like, no, frowning at me. What? No, we don't sell that. And I'm like, but I talked to a guy who told me that this was the store that he bought some at. So I know it's here. And then they were like, go to the pharmacy. And I'm like, that's weird. So I went to the pharmacy and I asked for distilled water and she said, oh yeah. And she gave me a bag of what looks like normal saline that you would use to inject somebody with. And I said, no, 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 I can't have salt in here. I don't want saline. I want distilled, distilled. And then someone else told me, ask for the stuff that they put in their iron. And I was asking about that. And she was like, no, this is exactly what you want. And I said, it's for a battery in a car. I thought, don't get it complicated with motorcycles. Just say car. And she said, yep, yep, this will work. And I read the package and it didn't say sodium or salt or NACL or anything like that in it. It just said um, sterile water. So I brought it to Jeremy and said, sorry, but I spent half an hour in the store. This is the best I could find. And it seemed to work. It did work. So I put that in my battery, topped it up, and uh, we hit the road. Uh, but now we're delayed by so much time, which wasn't a big deal until later it became a big deal. Um, again, we battle our way down the Pan American uh, with crazy drivers and traffic and all that nonsense. And, you know, on one hand, there's uh, the ocean, but we can't really see it. It's kind of uh, foggy. There's blowing, burning garbage all over the place. I hate to say it, Jim, but um, Peru has... Uh, burning garbage problem um and, and then diesel exhaust yeah. and then like mist or fog or whatever coming in off the ocean and mm. just dry dusty stuff floating everywhere it's yeah not the prettiest who's burning the garbage but then we find everybody just, just yeah privately. i don't know so yeah. on the side of the road every fifth pile of garbage is burning mm-hmm. hmm. and yeah it's it's burning or it's not burning but either way it's a problem um just just garbage all over the place. I've reached forward and pulled plastic garbage off my headlight more than once just driving down the road and ducked to avoid it flying through the air. Mm-hmm. Wow. So so describe yeah. the area. What does it look like? Does it look real dirty? It's dry. I think Peru is one of the driest countries. Like their annual rainfall is almost nothing, right? Mm-hmm. So sand, rock, dirt, garbage. That's your view from the Pan American Highway quite often. Yeah, and the Pan American is really the worst of it. So uh, I would say that Peru is has also provided some of the best motorcycling I've ever seen, and some of the most pristine glacial capped mountain ranges. Um, so it's got everything. But down by the Pan American, it's a it's a bit of an eyesore in spots. Does that drive you off the Pan American? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, 
we had a recommendation from a couple of different people, but I'm so glad we followed it to leave the Pan American and go into the Cordillera Blanca. Mm -hmm. And we were also looking for Canyon del Pato, which everybody's like, oh, you have to drive that if you're going to Peru. But we didn't know exactly where it was. It's not easy to find on a map or even Google. So we were leaving the Pan American, going in towards the Cordillera Blanca, Mm -hmm. and then the road turned to just dirt. Yeah, absolutely dirt gravel through kind of a desert atmosphere and i was at home like a kid in a candy shop i love that kind of riding um I, t- I stopped to take a picture of l because i was ahead of her she motors on past and then i get on my bike and i race to catch her and then uh fortunately the road turns to pavement fortunately for l i should say and just as it did and just as i was catching up to her i got a flat tire mm. so um, it was on my rear again. So that makes the fourth flat tire that I've had. Um, I pulled over to the side of the road, sun kind of beating down on us and it was fairly remote. There was some truck traffic, but not much. Um, and right there we had to do a roadside repair. There was no other option. Um, the trucks did beep at us and honk at us. And I think they were saying, Hey, you know, are you okay? And we kept giving them the thumbs up because we had at the time we had the situation under control. Um, so yeah, Elle and I put our heads together and we, um, repaired the rear flat with some cursing mm-hmm. and lots of cursing. Uh, lots of cursing. Uh, Shoving your fingers underneath the hide now rubber to get that tube inside the tire or even to get the bead broken to remove it in the first place. Yeah. There was a lot of scrapes, knuckles and swear words for me anyway. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. the hide now rubber is notoriously, uh, stiff. And it's a great tire, but um, to, to manually remove it on the side of the road with our little spoons and things was a bit tough. And again, the sun beating down. Uh, Elle gave me a nice sun hat, which I'm grateful to her for. Um, and uh, we set to work. And it took us an embarrassingly long amount of time, I would say, um, because I'm, I'm, you know, I guess we, we did it. Uh, but I'm not super proficient at it. So it, do you put the valve stem in first or do you put it in after? Yeah. Do you shove the tube in this way or should we put it from the other side? Yeah. Well, maybe the tire should be off the rim. No, it should be halfway on. No, the other half. No, the valve stem has to go this way and yeah. lots of that. Yeah. And then there was a, a short debate as to whether or not we should take the tire completely off to inspect, to see like what caused this flat. And in the end, I decided, yes, we do want to do that step. Um, so the tire came completely off and... We looked, there was no burrs, there was no nails, there was no nothing, um, it, but the tube was shredded. So something, picked something up and maybe tossed it, I don't know, but um, it was it was destroyed. So um, fortunately, I carry a spare tube, which I put in, and... Uh, that was a couple hours. Oh, no. You weren't supposed to say how long it was. I just wanted to say... I just wanted to say it took us an embarrassingly long amount of time, and then the listeners can decide how long that is. (laughs) So if if for them it would take 15 minutes, they might think, oh, it took them half an hour probably. It's true. You spilled the beans. Yeah, Yeah, she did. And the last guy who stopped, one of the motorcyclists who stopped to check on us, um, confirmed that the place that we were initially trying to get to that day was at least another five hours away still. Yeah. And, and it was remote. And so we kept asking, well, what about other places? Is there a tire shop? No. So even if we had, had gotten one of the trucks to help us, it might not have been any quicker. And what about a town that has a hotel? What if we just go around the corner to the very next town? What's that place? And he names it. And I say, is there a hotel? And he's like, no. <laughs> and I go, what about the next town after that? He's like, oh, that's at least an hour and a half. 
And I'm like, is there a hotel there? And he says, no. And he looks at me like, why did you ask such a silly question? Because we're going to need somewhere to sleep. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so tire goes back on. Tire goes back on. We inflate it. We check it. It's all good. And we hit the road again. And um, now we're driving into the Andes Mountains. So we leave the plains. The Pan American is long behind us. And uh, we're, we're into the mountains. And the road just gets rougher and rougher as the sun is setting. And uh, we we come up to this little community, uh, but there's nothing there. There's a restaurant. And I'm like, we haven't had food for I don't know how many hours. Like, we've got snacks, like a couple almonds, but we haven't had real food for half a day. We need to get food. So even if we're sleeping on the side of the road tonight, let's grab a restaurant while it's still open. So there was a couple restaurants, a truck stop, and a police station, and that was it. Okay, you're skipping ahead to where we ended up for the night. Yeah. I was saying... Once we fix the tire, we end up in this community. We ride around it. Mm-hmm. We find nothing. And so we carry on. Yeah. Yeah. So now we're committed. So we leave this only little establishment behind and we drive into the mountains and uh, the road is getting rougher and rougher and we are driving slower and slower and I'm keeping my eyes peeled for campsites. I'm um, like, okay, well, we could camp here. We could camp here. The sun is going down. We're not riding at night again, especially out here. But we're just going to go a little bit more. And we're riding, and there's a river. On the other side of the river, we can see this beautiful paved highway. With cars flying down quickly, smoothly, <laughs> easily. But yep. we're not on that road. We're on the dirt road on the other side of the river. Yep. And, and it's tantalizingly close Jim, we can almost like consider floating our bikes across the river to get to this road at points. And, and our, our navigational system suggests that there's like places where the roads overlap. That's how close it is. But no. And we keep riding and riding and riding and riding and riding and um, passing this campsite and that campsite. But I'm keeping track. I know that we can go and find a spot. And we've got water and we've got a filtration system. We'll be okay. And then we turn around this one bend and we find, uh, I would call it a rickety bridge Mm -hmm. and it's narrow and it's over the water and it leads to the highway and we just ride across it with some trepidation because it looked rickety and then we get to the highway and then immediately after that, a five ton truck drives across the same bridge. So it's not that rickety. It didn't, wasn't actually that rickety. Mm -hmm. And now we're racing the, the daylight and then we arrive at this town that Elle was talking about where, you can't really call it a town. It's a truck stop mostly, like maybe four or five restaurants, a couple shacks, a police station and a gas station. Yeah. So we ate something at a little roadside stop. Not much. People aren't big on vegetables. No. White rice, white plantains or potatoes yeah. and that's it. The guy who ran the restaurant lived in it. So um, if you walked to the back to go to the, the very ad hoc makeshift bathrooms, you actually had to walk past his bedroom. Um, we thought about asking him if we could sleep on the floor in his place, but I'd honestly rather use the bushes for a toilet than the toilets he had behind his place. Yeah. Mm. It was and that then, bad. It was that bad. It was yeah. bad. But now it's it's dusk, and we're not riding at night again. And so I decide, well, that's it. I'm sleeping right here beside this abandoned building. Right beside the road. Like you'd be sucking exhaust from vehicles going by. Yeah. Fortunately, uh, I have a quick thinking uh, travel partner in the form of Elle West. And she was like, nope, we're not doing that. I'm going to go talk to the police and see what they say. 
And if you don't want to come with me, that's fine. It might look better. Let me go alone as a single female. Yeah. yeah. And I talked to one of the police officers and just started a conversation, basically. Hi, good evening. How's it going? And I said, we're from Canada. We're traveling. We were trying to get to this town. And he looks at me with a frown like that town is still another four and a half hours away. I said, I know. That's why we're not getting there today. We had troubles, flat tire. Um, but we need to stop for the night because we don't want to keep driving in the dark. And he's again agreeing with me. Yeah dark road, dangerous. Don't do that. And I said, I don't want to do that, but I need somewhere to sleep and there's no hotels. And he's like, you're correct. There's none. I'm like in the next town from here. And he shook his head. No. And I said, so we have equipment. Can we camp right here? And he was like, yeah, absolutely you can. And he pointed again to the side of the road in the dirt, but then a couple other police officers came over and they were like, why don't you go right beside our building? There's a little bit of a roof. It's basically just some corrugated tin on sticks, but you'll be covered and you'll be right beside us, and we're here all night long. It was not just a police station. They seemed to be doing traffic stops, like every big truck that came through, mm-hmm. and even a bus occasionally. They made people yeah. get off and inspect their luggage. So it was some kind of inspection station, and there were staff there all day and all night long. So I knew we'd be safe. It was dirty. Um, it's basically just dust and gravel on the side of the road, but we had cover and we had safety. So there mm-hmm. we go. We had to we had to kick away some cat feces with our boots uh, to make a spot for our tent. And after we set up the tent, those buses that got stopped for inspection, when the customers got off the bus for a pee break, uh, ten feet from our tent on this side <laughs> of the wall was apparently the urinal. Yeah, and when you shine a, a light out down over the edge, um, like way below us was the river, and you shine a light there, and you would see like 5,000 glowing eyes looking back at you. That, there was a few neighborhood cats, not maybe 5,000. Oh, wow. 5, uh, anyway, there was a little tienda where I was able to grab uh, a conciliatory bottle of beer and bring it back and sit up in my hammock. I stretched yeah. up my hammock. We made a comfortable sight out of it, actually. And um, I smoked my pipe and uh, listened to the river and tried to ignore the garbage and the diesel smoke. And actually, it was a great night, to be honest. It was because we had come through such a um, a day of uncertainty that to wind up in a safe place with a tent and shelter and even a bottle of beer and uh, a tienda in the morning that we could have some breakfast at, it felt pretty luxurious, even though it was quite spartan. And the sun goes down about 630 so there's not much else to do. Mm-hmm. It was a good way to go to bed early, get plenty of sleep and get an early start the next morning too. I wonder what it looks like to them, you know, when, when they see you set up with a hammock and drinking a bottle of beer, like you're on vacation in this dumpy little spot. I wonder if they they scratch their head and think, what are these people doing? Uh, yeah, I'm sure they did. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, it didn't seem too weird. Like, I think that's a choke point for travelers, and they must see all kinds of people come through there. Um, I'm sure we were not the weirdest pair that they have ever seen. And in the morning, we uh, we walked around the corner and had a very simple breakfast. And um, then we hit the road and had another epic day, mm-hmm. uh, this time at least with no mechanical failures. We didn't even know where We're going to take just a quick break and then we're going to come back, but stay with us because you heard Jeremy, another epic day coming up. 
Well, if you're riding anywhere near southern British Columbia or even passing through to Alaska or the Yukon, consider dropping by the Red Rock Garage. The Red Rock Garage is in Beaverdale, British Columbia, and it's becoming a motorcycle destination. It's often described as a coffee shop with a motorcycle addiction. But that's not all. I mean, obviously, they have fuel and coffee there, but they've got a campground, they've got a B&B, even a cabin to rent. And on top of that, it's surrounded by some of the best riding you're going to find in British Columbia or anywhere for that matter. It's located on Highway 33 in Beaverdale. You should drop by their website, plan it into your route for the upcoming season and see why riders are making the trip to Beaverdale in British Columbia to visit the Red Rock Garage. Make sure when you're dealing with them, mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. It's redrockgarage.ca. You ever seen a pair of boots, maybe your boots, that are sort of chewed up on the bottom where the foot meets the peg? Obviously, this is because the teeth are digging into your, your boot itself. Now, this is one of the design aspects that IMS considers when making your foot peg. They come up with designs that help reduce wear and tear, yet still achieve the grip. For instance, the ADV-1 and ADV-2 pegs, you'll notice that the teeth are dull, yet they use multiple rows in a unique design. And those multiple rows allow more contact points, which makes your foot stay on the peg, yet not dig into the sole of your boot. Now, on the rally pegs, they have quite sharp teeth on them, but they use what's called a staggered tooth design, which means a couple of teeth close together. So it's kind of like a bed of nails thought process. You know, stand on one nail, it goes through your foot, stand on a bunch of nails, and you're supported, yet you get incredible grip. These are two different approaches to solve the same problem with two different pegs. So it depends on your application. So you can kind of see why I'm so impressed with IMS foot pegs. The background work that's put into these pegs before they go into even into manufacturing. Their website, imsproducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, please throw in there. You heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. imsproducts.com. another epic day mm-hmm. uh, this time at least with no mechanical failures we didn't even know where we were we had to look back at the roadsides behind us as we left to see what the name of this little truck stop even was and then try to figure out on the map where we were mm-hmm. we knew we were heading in deeper to the Cordillera Blanca but we weren't sure exactly what road we were on or where we were that's, that's right a, that's so a we new just way start... of map reading is to always check where you've been to figure out where you are yeah look backwards yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm. so talk about this other epic day Oh, well, we packed up and then we hit the road. We got maybe the earliest start ever. Yep. So that's a secret. <laughs> Getting going early in the morning is to have a really uncomfortable night or place to be sleeping for the night. And uh, we hit the road and just kept going. It's only one road. There's only one direction to go in. And we knew we were heading the right way, but not exactly sure where we were. And we're still on the lookout for the Canyon del Pato and towards the Cordillera Blanca. Mm-hmm. So we're going in and the road is like, really kind of spectacular we're still following the river and it's a deep canyon and the mountains around us are really quite remarkable and it's beautiful scenery and we stop and take a couple photos and we go more and take a couple photos and we go more and there's a tunnel and a really really narrow tunnel so if another truck is coming the other way you could not both fit so you honk and there's signs telling you to use your horn and honk before you go around blind corners because they will not stay on their own side of the road when they're coming around a corner and to honk before you go in the tunnels. And there's another tunnel and another tunnel. And then finally, we realized, I don't know if we saw a sign or just knew, we are on the Canyon del Pato. This is the road we've been looking for. Yeah. And it's awesome. There's, I've heard, I didn't count them all, but someone told me about 40 different tunnels. Yeah, something like that. It was jaw-droppingly beautiful. And the riding 
doing was just engaging. Uh, I guess uh, in just a few short years ago, this was a gravel road, but now it has been paved. Um, and the corners are beautiful and sweeping and there's the odd waterfall here on the right. And then there's another one on the left. And then you go through a tunnel and then another tunnel and another tunnel. And, um, the view is just, uh, stunning brown mountains on either side. And, uh, I went through a tunnel when I was in the lead and there was a vehicle in front of me, a big truck. So I know that if anyone's coming the other way, I don't need to worry too much. I'll just stay relatively close to him. And he stopped in the middle of the tunnel. And then I peek around the corner. There is another vehicle coming the other direction. So the two of them are like an inch apart from each other, face to face in the middle of a black tunnel. Mm -hmm. They're arguing about who should back up and who's going to get out of the way of who. Mm -hmm. And it takes a long time. Well, Jeremy comes up behind me now. And then another vehicle comes up behind me now. So there's four of us facing one or maybe two vehicles the other way. And everybody is honking. Somebody's honking at anybody. I don't even know if they know who they're honking at. And the guy behind us gets out of his vehicle. He's not happy. I'm just kind of interestingly watching, like, how is this going to get solved? It doesn't really matter that much to me. I could probably squeeze by one of these vehicles, but the two of them are going to have to figure out who backs up. The guy behind us got out and just started yelling. I don't know exactly what he said, but very shortly after that, the two vehicles that were smaller backed up. And they didn't have very far to back up, maybe 50 feet. No. To me, it was very clear that the oncoming traffic, like we were going one direction and that the traffic that was coming towards us, they were clearly in at fault here because they were just at the beginning of the tunnel, whereas we had already gone through about, you know, three quarters of it and we had more vehicles going our direction, but they just had to be convinced by enough angry drivers that they had to back up. That so, seems how things to be are done here around here. Yeah, like honking like, and yelling until someone finally consents. Who gathers mm. the most angry people wins mm. the argument. So uh, they eventually backed up and we carried on. So it sounds like what they do is they sit there and look at, take each case by case. So every time somebody comes mm-hmm. head to head in a tunnel, they've got to discuss it. Yeah. I guess so. You would think you'd see someone coming around the corner and notice, oh, by the time we get to that tunnel, we'll be facing each other. I should pull over here and wait for him to pass. But they don't seem to do that. No. Hmm. Yeah, that's strange. And, and so after that road, um, we finally get to a faster section of road and we start going south again. And it's We're, amazing how much time we have when you actually leave before eight o'clock in the morning and get yeah. started. Yeah. It's a great day. Mm. And we get to a big-ish town, and then we look at our, our maps and our notes, and we're trying to decide what to do for the day. And that's when we realize that we have missed the Cordillera Blanca. Uh, this this road that everyone says we've got to do, we drove right past it, and it's about half an hour behind us. So uh, we did some some debate, and we talked it over, and we decided that, yep, We've got enough time today. We're going to backtrack all the way to the Cordillera Blanca. We don't really know what to expect, but people said we got to do it. So we did. Um, after a bit of food, we gassed up and we went back to the Cordillera Blanca. Again, kind of playing with the last remaining daylight, uh, which seems to be a, a habit that we've gotten into. Um, but we, I couldn't have been more excited about that road. It, I think it is the top five motorcycle roads that I've ever ever been on in my life and I'm so glad we did it. 
Um, Jeremy's the one that tends to push more often. I like see something and I get excited about it. And Jeremy's the voice of reason. No, we don't have time. We have to keep going. The sun is only going to be up for another hour or 45 minutes and we need to keep going to get to town. We don't want to be stuck in the dark. And this time he was not the one saying that. He was the one saying we have to stop and take pictures. This is amazing. I think I said to Elle on the intercom system, um, I think I said, it's so beautiful. It makes me want to write a sonnet. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to wax poetic about this road. It looked like, uh, well, it's Christmas time, more or less, um, as we talk to you now, Jim. You know that ribbon candy that comes out um, this time of year Mm. with all the curves in it? That's what the road looked like. It just folded in on itself just over and over and over and over. And then... Up ahead of us is a glacier mm-hmm. way up high and way in the distance uh, over this sweeping pasture land is this waterfall and then the road. Ugh. Every switchback, you look down and think, look at that valley. That's amazing. And as you come up, you think, wow, look at that glacier. That's amazing. I couldn't get any closer to it. And every time you do another switchback, it gets better. And it was flawless asphalt, mm-hmm. too. So that was just on the way up. And then we have to switch back all the way down, which, again, was beautiful, past these lakes and everything. And um, I lost my rear brakes. Um, eventually, they just faded right out. And I'd never heard of this before. I thought that only happened with drum brakes. But my brakes got so spongy that I, I basically stopped using them. Oh, I, I mean, it's so hot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Because you go maybe to third gear and then down to second, maybe even first for this tight, tight, tight switchback and then pick up some speed again and then just hit your brakes one more time for this switchback and repeat, repeat, repeat all the way down the mountain. So I'd never experienced that. And I thought that I'd cut my brake line. I thought that maybe there was air in the system. Uh, But later that night, and then so I just stopped using my back brakes, which means I radically adjusted my riding style. I used you know, my engine to slow down well before the corners. I used my front brake on the straightaways to set up for the corners, etc. cetera. Um, but then after I gave it like 15 minutes without using my back brake, it came back. So I think it was just the brake fade from the heat, but I didn't think that happened with disc brakes. It does happen. I've, I've never had it happen with a motorcycle, but I've had it happen with vehicles a number of times with, with four-wheel discs. And you, you get the heat up to the point where they just no longer work and they feel very spongy. Um, and mm-hmm. It's quite yeah. scary. Yeah. We saw a truck pulled over in the creek splashing water onto his wheels. So I think that's what he was doing is trying to cool him off. Yeah. Yeah, so that was our, our, our second day. We kept thinking, or I kept thinking, we need a kind of uh, an easy day. Like maybe not a rest day. Maybe we don't need to stop. But, you know, that big border crossing day, then the, you know, the long day on the Pan American, then the flat tire, then the Cordillera Blanca followed by, uh, sorry, Canyon Del Pato Road followed by Cordillera Blanca. I'm like, come on, we need a, a bit of a break soon. And then uh, the next day, I thought we would have that. But again, we had another bit of an epic day. Um, Rather than backtracking, which was the original plan, we were going to ride the Cordillera Blanca going the opposite way. And we thought, why not? It's beautiful. Um, But instead, we chose to take a dirt road um, that went south without having to backtrack. So we did this. And I think our average speed was somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 kilometers an hour. Maybe 40, yeah. 30, 40 kilometers an hour for, what, six, seven hours? Ooh, 30 or 40 nice Dirt kilometers road. an hour, or you had to because it's so bad? 
beautiful scenery nice but slow going because again we're in the high elevation mountains so the road is switchbacking often only it's dirt now so sometimes there's rough dirt and it's potholes and really bouncy and making you rattle all over the place. Sometimes it smooths out and you can pick up a little bit of speed, but then there's a switchback or then there's a town. And then there's speed bumps. I don't know why you need speed bumps on an already pothole dirt road, but there are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, sheep or cows or goats or all kinds of stuff crossing the road sometimes, plugging it up for a moment. And that was the day, too, that we got stuck by that truck pulling a tractor. Yeah, so we took off into a really remote area. When we stopped to take some photos, there was no one else around. I haven't felt that much peace and aloneness since Canadian Rockies. Mm-hmm. Um, it was stunning. There was lakes, again, high up glacier-fed lakes, so they have that bright color to them. And we stopped. It was a little gloomy and a bit misty, not mm-hmm. quite rain, but we were up in the clouds, so we were a bit damp. And still just stopped to take photos because it felt like you were on top of the world and Mm -hmm. there was no one else around. So dirt road with a little bit of mud now that it's misty and damp. And um, I squished by a truck. I pulled over to let the truck go by. He was a big truck carrying some heavy equipment. And man, he came within about two inches of pushing me over. But that's just how narrow the road was. So I waited and watched as he went by. And then I kept going up. So I'm switch backing up, taking a little bit of video of Jeremy down below. And Jeremy doesn't come. He's not coming. He's not coming. Where is he? Oh, that truck. He hasn't passed that truck yet. And I see the truck is stopped Mm -hmm. completely still on one of the corners. I thought he was stuck in the mud. Yeah, he wasn't stuck in the mud. What happened was, as I was approaching him, he was approaching me. Um, he just ran out of turning radius. So um, the driver did an excellent job. He had two spotters with him. Uh, one spotter was in the passenger seat, peering out of the window, looking down, and there was just a cliff. So he was using every available inch on the outside of the corner. And then his inside wheels couldn't make the corner of the trailer. So there was a big rocky berm. He backed up and went forward and backed up and went forward. He was using every available inch of that road. So what they did was they started piling rocks so that the tractor wheels, instead of hitting a buttress, would actually climb up this little rock ramp. That was the theory and then would make the corner, they sort of thought. And um, they piled rocks and they piled rocks. And eventually the trailer went up this little rock ramp. And the back tires of the trailer went up the ramp and then slid off the side towards the edge of the cliff. But um, fortunately, that was enough to keep it on the road and increase the turning radius for the truck. And it got around. And then I was able to get by. Towards the end of that day, long, beautiful riding on gravel roads, uh, Elle was stung in the face by some kind of insect that got into her eye. And uh, so we pulled off to the side of the road. And as we pulled off to the side, we notice a sign. Jeremy notices. I'm standing there swearing and crying. And Jeremy's looking around and going, oh, look, there's a sign that tells us there's a waterfall. And it's only two kilometers up this dirt road. (laughs) And I'm thinking I am so relieved that the dirt is almost done for the day. We're expecting to reach pavement any kilometer now. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't incredibly challenging dirt, but it's enough that it's not comfortable to sit down on. You're getting rattled about and your back is sore. So I was standing for most of it and I'm tired, but two kilometers isn't far. 
mm-hmm. could probably do that, but it totally depends how the road is. So we go up and look, the locals tell us, yep, yep, two kilometers, no problem. And we ask, is it a difficult road? And nobody says anything. And there's taxi drivers going up, so it can't be that bad, right? Yeah. So it was a rough road. Um, there were some trees chopped down and pushed off to the side, but not completely clear of the road. So when I slid in the mud and fell over. I landed on top of a couple of these trees and got tangled in them. And mm-hmm. I couldn't lift my own bike. And I could remove every single bit of luggage first and then maybe try to lift it or just wait for Jeremy to come back and help me lift it. And I, I was it. deciding if I even wanted to continue. I'm already tired. I don't think I want to keep going, but it depends how beautiful the waterfall is. I don't know if this is worth seeing. We'll go a little bit further, mostly because the road was too skinny to pull a U-turn on anyway. Mm -hmm. So may as well just keep going a little bit further. And it wasn't too bad, so a little further, and then it got worse. And then there was a bridge that was literally just two by four planks laid down and a couple more crossways on top of them. But some of them were missing. There were holes where you could see directly through into the rushing river below. There's for sure no guardrail. Like there never was a guardrail. This is a makeshift bridge. And it's covered in mud, completely slick. I already fell in the mud. I know how slippery it is. If you fell on this slippery mud spot on the bridge, you would go into the river. No, this is a clear no for me. I don't need to think about it or debate it or weigh my ego or compete against Jeremy. I literally have no trouble looking at that bridge and saying, nope, I am done. How big is the bridge and how big is the river and how much is the drop? Um, The drop between the bridge and the river is not very far. Um, 10 10, feet. 10 feet. And then the bridge is maybe 10 feet wide. Mm. But it was covered in mud, like Ella's saying, and it had boards that went, um, you know, parallel to your direction of travel, uh, like just enough for two tire tracks. I didn't think it was that challenging, but the consequences for messing up were high. Um, so Elle stopped and I just went across the bridge uh, and it was a little bit slippery and it was a little bit slick. I saw him wiggle and I went, yep, that's. A good indication that I made a good choice. I don't yeah. want to do that. Yeah. So I parked the bike on one side of the bridge. Elle was on the other. We had a little chat. I said, I think the waterfall is up ahead. Uh, I'm going to ride on ahead and see how bad the road is and how beautiful the waterfall is. I'll report back to you. And then as I left um, to go up this road, it just deteriorated very quickly. It got very steep. Um, enough that I wished I had more power on my KLR, all fully loaded. And then it also got very rutted. So um, I was doing great. I had some momentum. I had a good line picked out. And then I hit a little bit of uh, a rock or something that knocked me off course. And then I'm in the ruts. And I'm still carrying some momentum going up the steep hill. It was just hit and miss, Jim, whether or not I was going to save this thing or not. And I bounced this side of the rut and that side of the rut. And on one side of me was a steep drop off to the river again. So I was trying to err on the side of caution and go towards the mountain. And I dropped the bike. So L was way down below me. So uh, I kind of had to drag the machine kind of off the gravel where it had landed so that I could pick it up and then continued up the slope because there was no real way to turn around. So I did make it to the parking lot of the waterfall 
but it was another 20 minute hike to get there. So oh, wow, <laughs> uh, there were some people there who did confirm that it was beautiful. So although I did make it to the parking lot and I feel like I should have been awarded uh, a, a view of waterfalls, I remembered that I had left my wonderful girlfriend behind. So I decided to turn the bike around and um, I made it back down to her without incident. And we turned around and, and went back down the road without incident. And L, I'm sure you're thinking when you see him come back, yep, I made the right choice. Absolutely. I didn't know he fell till after he pulled over and told me about it, but I thought he took a while. <laughs> and then, not even 45 minutes later, we're back on the main gravel road, which we had been on all day, and there's a section of construction. And L goes through it without a problem. I'm following her. Uh, I see there's a, a wet, muddy section, and then there's a dry line off to the left. Well, I want the dry line, but I was lined up for the wet section. So I turned and I gave it a little bit of throttle and it slid me out. I ended up on my side. Uh, maybe I wasn't uh, thinking straight because it had been a long day or maybe I was a little bit rattled from dropping my bike earlier. At any rate, I made a poor uh, riding choice and paid for it. So it just gets better and better, Jim, because after that epic day, like so we have now had four, maybe three, four epic days in a row where we're just riding and going right till dusk and falling into our beds and getting up and doing it all over the next day. I need a break. And we finally come to this campsite off of the Pan American Highway um, after another beautiful day of riding twisty asphalt roads. And um, we camp for the night right by the ocean. We're the only people there. It's a park that looks like they expect more people, but it's off season or not the right time of week or who knows what. We were the only people camping there. Um, they were painting the units and doing other things that looked like off-season type work. And we are just a short walk from the ocean. We can hear the ocean waves from our campground all night long. There's a friendly dog who seems really young and really rambunctious. So I get him revved up and play with him. He hangs out with us all evening. And um, we had the place to ourselves when we went to sleep that night, except for the dog. Yeah. We spent the night walking, or the evening rather, walking on the beach and um, watching all these birds. It was idyllic, um, besides little pockets of burning garbage because it is Peru. Um, and some garbage again that was not burning. Anyway, wow. we go to sleep that night and the dog tries to come into the tent with us. Actually tries crawling right in. Like he's like, I'm with you guys now. Yeah. And I was like, nope, you're not coming in the tent. Uh, sorry, buddy. We love you, but you're outside dog. And then in the wee hours of the night, dark night, I hear Russell, Russell, Russell. And I'm like, oh, oh, it's a robber coming to kill us. No, Jeremy, you're being crazy. Uh, but it does sound like footsteps outside. That is alarming. Oh, no, it's nothing. It's nothing. I hear it again. Oh, no, it must be the wind just rustling my hammock. Yeah, that's what it is. You're not in any danger, Jeremy. Just go to sleep. And I keep hearing it. And I keep waking up. And I keep thinking I should inspect and then at one time, I see a shadow of a dog moving by the tent. And I'm like, oh, good. It's just the dog. Uh, he's our friend, so there's no danger. He's not barking at anyone. No problem. And then I hear more rustling. This time, I switch on my headlight, and I poke my head out of the tent. The dog had spent the last hour coming into our vestibule and taking various items from my bag and removing them from the site. So... <laughs> 
uh, at about, I don't know, maybe three o'clock in the morning, I finally had to crawl out of my tent, chase the dog down, find my computer cables, which had money in the bag and find my sandals, which were 200 meters away. He couldn't even put his shoes on because they were gone. And he's buck naked in the middle of the night with almost a full moon, walking across the field, picking up his passport, his clothing, his money. And he's mad, but it was really hard not to laugh. Yeah. (laughs) Elle slept through the whole thing. I checked my vestibule and everything was zipped up and it was okay. And the dog was sleeping right beside me in the vestibule. (laughs) There's my luggage and the dog... And Jeremy's off naked in the moonlight getting his things. And it, we were in the sand. So everything in the morning had to be uh, taken apart. And there was sand done. everywhere. But I'm surprised nothing was destroyed. Like when you said your leather boot was missing, I'm like, oh, dogs like chewing on leather things. Your boot is going to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. This is going to be a problem. But he didn't chew it. He didn't destroy anything. He just took it and placed it halfway across the field and came back and did it with another did, thing. Did Jeremy leave his pack open? my pack was unzipped. Uh, yeah. Like I knew I wasn't in bear country. I didn't think there were any wild animal problems around. And I thought the dog was our friend. <laughs> Turns out, uh, he was a mischievous friend, mm-hmm. but we were friends in the morning and he shared breakfast with us. And breakfast was not much. This place had not even a restaurant or they did, but it was only open on three days a week. And we weren't there on those three days. So there was no food to be had. We have maybe half an inch of peanut butter left in a jar and some water and almonds. And that's all we have for breakfast. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't go to a restaurant the night before for supper either. So again, it's one of those days where I'm worried that we're going to get hangry and annoyed at each other because this is not an ideal situation and we haven't had a lot of food. Mm-hmm. Hangry. Yep. And there's a word in Spanish for that too. I've learned. Enojambrado. Same idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're just going to not be in a rush today. We're not going to maybe get as far as we hoped, but that's life. We cannot continue with all this sand inside of everything, and we have to make sure that Jeremy's passport and all the things that are important are together. Mm -hmm. So it's a slow morning. We don't get moving anytime quickly. And by the time we do get everything packed up, loaded up, zipped up, ready to go, Jeremy says, my tire's flat. Yep. And that's... That's when I checked my the PSI on my tire, and it was holding at about 10 PSI. And um, I would take out my compressor, I would inflate it to 35, and it would immediately drop back to 10. It wouldn't go completely flat. It would go to 10, maybe 15, and hold, uh, which is weird. But um, So that might have explained the construction zone crash of the day before. I'm not sure. Uh, the point is I had a flat tire again. And um, the decision was made to, with 10 or 15 PSI, just kind of monitor it as the day went by and get to maybe Lima. We're not far from Lima, 120 kilometers maybe. Yeah. There's a town between us and there, so we're just going to try to get to that town. We will go slow and easy. We'll find some food. We need to eat breakfast and then ask around about tire stores. And people were friendly and helpful, but they said, no, we have car tires. We don't do motorcycle tires here. So we decided finally, let's just give up in this small town and head right to Lima. Everything we need will be in Lima. Yeah. And I was checking my tire as I was riding. It looked low, but for some reason it was still holding at 15, 10 PSI, somewhere in that neighborhood. And uh, I knew I wasn't going to damage the rim, um, you know, if I was careful. And we were on the Pan American, so there was no rough, rocky roads. So we kept going to Lima. 
the timing wasn't great. We tried to go into Lima at around 1030 in the morning. We thought that would be good past morning rush hour traffic, but not late into the afternoon either. But the dog and the packing up changed things. So it's about noon now. I would say it was a little after that. And then as we're in the outskirts of Lima, I'm beginning to think we did it. We're going to find a hostel and we're going to get the tire fixed and everything. And then great. This is fantastic. And then my tire did actually pick up a nail and it went completely, completely flat. And now it's about 3.30 p.m. And the only option is to find immediate lodging, like within walking distance, or to find a tire shop within a walking distance. And Jeremy can't drive, so it's up to me. And um, I'm not thrilled, but I saw a sign for hotel. I can do that. Okay, I'm just going to go to the hotel place. And it looks weird. It looks kind of like a no-tell motel. We're clearly not in the good area of Lima. But um, yeah, he says he'll rent me a room. And he says the price isn't bad. But he says there's no Wi-Fi. That sucks. We were really hoping to get Wi-Fi because then we could do some research and find tire shops and get what we need figured out. So I go back to Jeremy. I say, you know what? This guy says there's no Wi-Fi, but at least it'd be a parking lot where we could um, take the wheel off and we can figure stuff out. We could do something. At least we'd have a place to sleep for tonight. At least that one thing would be taken care of. Yep. Okay. So he loads my bike up with his luggage. He walks beside me. We go down to the place and the guy changes his mind. Mm -hmm. I don't know what happened. It was weird. He's like, no, sorry, closed. And I'm like, what are you talking about? What's going on? Jeremy was just like, whatever. If that's what he says, let's find another place. We're in a big city. There'll be lots of other places. So we go back to the gas station. Jeremy stays with his luggage. He starts taking his wheel off the bike. I keep going and looking for tire places and hotels. And there was one that had the rates right up front. It said, clearly, this many um, soles for this many hours. And the maximum was five hours. So I understand this is the kind of hotel that most people don't sleep at for the whole night. So I say to the guy, I need a place for the night. And he said five hours. And I said, I understand that's your rate for five hours. What if I paid you more? I want to stay for the whole night. And he said, no, five hours. And I said, I want more than five hours. I'll pay more. Like, if that's the thing, fine, just charge me, whatever. Um, He said, no, only five hours. And then maybe, well, what time will you come? If you come late at night, then maybe you can stay till early in the morning. No, I don't want to come late at night. It's 3.30 in the afternoon. I want to get off the highway. I want to get cleaned up and relaxed and figure out what we're going to do next. I don't want to wait till 10 p.m. to come here. No. Can I please just have the whole night? No. What the heck? Well, can you at least tell me where there might be a tire place? Oh, yeah. And he tells me. So I go down where he mentioned three blocks. There's a huge tire store, but they only do car tires. Nothing to do with motorcycles. Jeremy has a front tube. 21 inch that Mm -hmm. maybe in a last ditch effort we could put in the rear tire but that's not ideal somebody in the size a city the size of lima must have these things but how far am i going to go to look for them so yeah so by the time she comes back to me at the uh, gas station i had my wheel off and i was about to put a 21 inch tube into a 17 inch tire and um that was my plan And Elle was like, nope, I'm taking the tire because I know where there's a motorcycle uh, shop now. She had gotten the intel. And I'll just go and do it. They'll get a proper tube and blah, blah, blah. I'll take your 21-inch with me just in case they don't have a proper tube and they can at least put it in and it would be faster than us doing it here on the side of the gas station. So she straps on my wheel to the back of her bike and she leaves. And that's when I realize we don't have SIM cards in our phones, no way to contact each other. 
if something should happen to Elle, like her bike breaks down or she gets lost or God forbid she ends up in a hospital or something, I will have no options. Like he I don't, has no wheel on I don't his have bike. a wheel. <laughs> so I'm looking around and I'm like, okay, I live here now. This is, this is my new reality. I live at this gas station <laughs> and I was, I was thinking about putting up my tarp and stuff, but, um, fortunately we uh, did agree. It was about 4 PM and we did agree that I would be back by 6 PM for sure. So even if I didn't find a place, even whatever you know, success or not success with the tire, I would at least come back by 6 PM mm-hmm. and that would be d- getting dark. So we would put our heads together and figure out. I found a place. I was very, very happy about that because I followed my map to tell me where to go to the motorcycle store, but I didn't think about putting a pin in my map to remember where Jeremy was to come back to him later. And I started worrying about this as I'm driving away. And then there's so many one-way streets, and I'm not going to be able to come back the same route that I go, and I'm looking for landmarks, and I'm so busy stressing. Good thing there was one store that just said, motorcycle with a big logo and a picture that made me stop at one even closer than the one I was originally going to. He put a 18 inch tube in a 17 inch wheel. And I'm like, good, that's better than a 21. I'm happy. Just do it. And he said, I don't recommend you this for long. I'm like, just for one day is all I need. He said, okay, we chatted. It was great. Brought the tire back, put it on. And now I'm like, that hotel didn't want us. The other hotel didn't want us. We still need a hotel for tonight, even though we've got a tire. I say that we just suck it up and drive in rush hour traffic. It's like 4.35 p.m., but let's keep going in deeper into Lima to the actual touristy area instead of this place because we can't find a hotel and we don't want to be here anyway. Mm-hmm. So Jeremy agreed. We're going to fight rush hour traffic in Lima. <laughs> the capital city of the worst drivers we've ever met. It sounds exciting. It was very stressful. <laughs> I had a hard time. Jeremy came up beside me at a red light and kind of bonked. Sometimes we reached over and gave each other a friendly little push, but I didn't realize it was Jeremy doing it. And I thought the car behind me actually pushed me a little bit. I was going to lose my. She, <laughs> she turned around, Jim, and I saw a flash of pure hatred <laughs> uh, just ripple through her countenance. And I was afraid, but at the same time amused. Traffic was stressful, was thick. I mean, everybody honks at everybody. Everybody shoves everybody. It doesn't matter who's got the right of way. There could be three lanes going one direction. The guy in the far right lane is going to decide to make a left-hand turn, and he's going to do it and cut off everybody in the process. And that's not uncommon. So we kept squiggling as much as we could. We have luggage, so we can't always fit between the vehicles. But when there's a red light and there's not too many cars in front of us, we can squiggle to the front. We go ahead and do that. And instead of just red, yellow, green, there's a countdown system. So the light turns red, and then there's a display beside the red light telling you how many seconds it's going to be red for. So it's kind of like beginning of a race. It says like 43, 42, 41, and it keeps counting down. And I've noticed previously that if you do not start moving before the light turns green, so when that red goes down to three two, one, if you're not already moving when it goes to one, let alone zero and then green, the people behind you will start moving and push you or honk at you and it'll be insane. So you got to be ready. You got to be in gear. You got to be revving your engine a touch. And by the time it goes to one, get into the intersection. But the people going the other direction don't stop driving just because they have a red light. They will literally keep going as long as they can. They will keep shoving themselves through until you force them to stop by nosing your vehicle right at them. So I did. 
When you guys mm-hmm. are stopping to ask directions and, and, and asking for, for tubes, et cetera, and, and tire repair, you're, you're speaking in Spanish, I assume. Yes. Mm-hmm. Elle speaks much better Spanish than I do, but yeah. And are you getting better, Elle? I think I'm learning. I'm definitely picking up a few more things along the way, but I struggle. Um, anything beyond the basic first couple of sentences, I have to ask, sorry, can you please repeat that or slow down? Like the tire shop, the bar one that directed me to where the motorcycle ones would be, I didn't get three sentences in before he just stopped me and then yelled for his buddy who speaks English to come on over. I'm, I'm curious, how does, a, how does a vegetarian or what's it like for a vegetarian in South America? So big cities are great. A city like Lima has plenty of options. In fact, we saw tons of restaurant chains that we recognized. Um, but in small towns or those little villages, like when we went off the Pan American into the mountains, there's not much options. Breakfast, I can count on getting eggs for breakfast. And if I don't carry almonds or peanut butter or some other source of protein with me, that would probably be my only source of protein for the day. Chicken, cooey, beef, pork, goat, lamb are all options. And you will not find a dish with one of those things not already in it. I could ask for vegetable soup and it will have a carcass of a chicken floating in it. Um, I asked for a omelet with vegetables and I got tuna, Mm -hmm. you know, like you just, it's yeah. Eat what you can pick around and really look for vegetables in big cities because you're not going to find them in small towns, white rice, white potatoes, white yucca, plantains and that's it i'm just getting starches so i stock up when we get to places where i find fresh fruits and veggies uh, i figured it would be a, it would be very difficult so you're you're um you're in nasca now and where do you go after this well um we're heading towards machu picchu so cusco is the next um next city on our, our list apparently it's a beautiful ride to get there and then we have to do some research as to how to best access Machu Picchu. And then from there, uh, we have to skip a few things in Peru, unfortunately. I think we go to Bolivia next. And, um, along the way, Lake Titicaca, then La Paz, um, then the Salar de Uni, uh, the salt flats in Bolivia. And then, like, I don't know, we have to look at our calendar and see if we're on schedule, if we need to speed things up, or if we're doing okay. We're trying to keep up with the weather, but for right now, it's uh, Cusco. Today, we're going to pack up and hit the road and not make very many miles. <laughs> but get towards it. Yeah. Any any concerns? No. Uh, we, you know, we've got good bikes. Els is due for a service soon. I've got brand new tires, front and rear, brand new tubes. So hopefully, knock on wood, my flat tire woes are behind me. I've never in my life had so many flat tires. Uh I've been a motorcyclist for 30 plus years and this is weird for me. So I hope that's behind me. Um, getting better at changing them though. So that's the upside. (laughs) Um, you know, we hear rumors of roadblocks here and there. Mm -hmm. Um, there's some, some taxi drivers striking in an area that we're going to, and they have set out burning tire roadblocks. There's uh, political trouble right now in Bolivia and Chile and rumors of it uh, <clears throat> boiling in Argentina. But so far, we've just had a pretty relaxed attitude towards that, and it has served us well. So by the time we reach an area that was problematic, it so far has cleared itself up. So hopefully smooth sailing mm-hmm. going forward. But if not, um, you know, we'll try to make some smart decisions about our safety. 
Oh, uh, one thing I should say, Jim, is we spoke about this a long time ago, that looming cash call with my condominium complex. Um, it turns out that that is coming down. If you've been following along with Southward Chronicles since the beginning, you'll remember probably at the beginning that uh, Jeremy talked about this cash call that might come up, whereas uh, all the people in the condominium may have to pitch in some cash because there was something stolen or missing or something from the funds for, that help run this place. In any case, this is coming to fruition now. They're saying there is going to be a cash call and they're trying to determine how much. This will mean that Jeremy will have to take money from his travel budget and put it towards this cash call, which really changes the dynamic of his trip. Uh, so I might actually have my budget unexpectedly, suddenly cut in half on this trip. Um, What's that going to do be, for you? Well, it's keeping me up at night sometimes and it's stressing me out. Um, but I think I'll scrape by and if I have to beg, borrow and not steal, but if I have to beg and borrow a few dollars here and there. <laughs> Jeremy and Al, take care. Till next time. Thanks, Thanks, Jim. Thanks a lot. That was Jeremy Craker and L. West on our Adventure Rider Radio exclusive travel series, Southward Chronicles. Stay tuned for more coming from them in the months ahead as we follow their journey to Ushuaia into 2020. We've got links to their social media accounts in the show notes for this episode. I encourage you to follow along with them on Instagram and Twitter as well. Jeremy is Jeremy underscore Craker and L is L on wheels. Those links are in the show notes, as I said. Now, I want to mention also that um, Jeremy is the author of a book called Motorcycle Therapy. When he finished the book, we had him on the show some time ago, and I'm going to put a link to that episode in the show notes as well. Motorcycle Therapy is available anywhere books are sold. You can get it at Amazon. It's also an ebook and an audio book. Definitely worthwhile checking out, and you'll get a little bit better idea of um, where Jeremy comes from as far as adventure. Motorcycle Therapy. you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. I want to thank you for listening and being a part of the show. And thank you to Elizabeth Martin, our producer. Hey, if you um, like what you're hearing, drop by our website. You can listen to all of our episodes there. And more importantly, you can look at the show notes because in the show notes, we often have photographs and some more information and links, etc. So drop by and have a look. Also, at the bottom of the page is a comment section. We'd love to get your comments, a little feedback on the show. Tell us what you think. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike. Hey, wait. 
before you go, I'd like to encourage you to drop by the website if you're not doing it already and click on the support button. This is built on a model of some advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. It takes a lot of work to put it together and we need your help. It's Christmas time. If you celebrate Christmas, if you don't, it's the end of the year. Think about it. Drop by our website, click on support. Thanks very much for listening. My name's Jim Martin. Talk to you next week. This is Dr. Gregory W. Frazier, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 